Today I'd like to talk to you about what it means to be kept. Be kept. Turn with me over to the book of John. Book of John. We're going to look at chapter 17, verses 11 through 15. John chapter 17, verses 11 through 15. Being kept. Jesus is speaking. And he says in verse 11 of John 17, I am no longer in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. 13. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Lord, help as we study your word. There's really no way we can keep ourselves. That doesn't mean we can't get up every day and make sure that we are together and we have our lives in order in such a way as we can make it to the next after having made it through this one. But it does mean that there's no way we can keep ourselves in God. We've kind of proven that. We're much better sinners than we are saints. We've got to work hard to obey. Maybe I'm not talking to the right crowd today. <laughs> I have to work hard to obey. It might be a whole lot easier for you all, but I've got to tell myself, do the right thing, Brad. Don't let your flesh take you in the wrong direction. Go right when you shouldn't go left. Make sure you, you think right. Make sure you love right. Make sure you forgive. Make sure you don't let a seed of bitterness get down in your soul because that person said something really bad about you. They did something evil to you. Forgive. Be compassionate. Be patient. Be loving. Be kind. Be understanding. Be tolerant. Prefer someone else above your own needs. I got to work hard at being a Christian. It's easier to be a sinner. A whole lot easier. Just do what you want. Now, even though it's easier, I'd rather do the hard. Because the consequences of doing the easy are much more difficult to bear than the difficulty I have in doing the hard. People come to me and they understand how hard it is in being a Christian. And they say, Pastor, I just can't. It's just too... I, gotta, I, can't, say, I can't say no to this. And I, and I said, I know, I know, I know, I know. But yeah, how's that alimony going? Child support Okay. You got fired from your job from embezzlement. How you doing? Yeah, when you posted that thing about that person and they blasted you and then everybody cut you off, swiped left on you every time they had an opportunity, how's that? The consequences of doing easy are much more difficult to bear than the decision to do right. So even though it is hard to do right. We need to do right because this version of hard is so much better than the other version of hard. 
so much better. I get good fruit out of fulfilling this version of heart. I have a wife who still loves me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been 35 and she still loves me. Woke up this morning, she held my hand real tight. I thought, oh, <laughs> hallelujah. <laughs> the fruit of, of trying to do right is good. But even in our best efforts of doing right, we can't do right on our own. Because it is so easy for us to do wrong, the Holy Spirit has to enable us to be as right as we need to be. We can't be right on our own. There's no way our good works can keep us in God. Our good works are those that prove he is keeping us, but they aren't the things that keep us. Are you listening to me? As good as you might be, you are horrible all by yourself. Horrible. And the only reason you are a version of good that you experience now is because of the grace of God. It is not a rehabilitative effort on your part that has made you so good. The only reason you were righteous before me is because he made you that, that way. And as a result of that righteousness, now you can do better than you've ever done. But left to yourself, you can be a little bit better than Hitler. But you'll never be good enough to be approved by God. Because you've already proven you're bad. You've already proven you're wrong. That ship has sailed with respect to perfection. It's gone. And the only way we can be proven right before God is if we are perfect. And none of us are. So we have proven that we are flawed, fallible, and finite. Flawed that we have the tendency to be wrong. Fallible in that we have done wrong. And there's going to come an end to us that's different than who God is. There is no end to him. And as a result of our fallibility, the end, it comes as a consequence of our wrong deeds. We are messed up by ourselves. And as a result, it's supposed to be a red flag to say stop and surrender. This is who you are at best. Stop and surrender. And when we do so, we come to the cross and we allow him to take our punishment, to be he who can complete that which we could not. When he said it was finished, he lived the perfect life. He transferred that ability of, to, to be declared righteous before God to us. And we hide ourselves in him as we die to ourselves. As we no longer appear before God on the basis of our own good deeds, on the basis of our own righteousness, we cannot because we've already done wrong. And there's no way God can sweep our, our bad deeds out of the, out of the way, under the carpet, and, and somehow just only look at our good. He is a righteous God and therefore must punish wickedness. He can't just let it go. And thus, no matter what we do good, the bad must be dealt with. And he didn't want that to happen to us, and so he sent his son. And he who did not deserve to die, died on our behalf. Therefore, he could take our penalty and then give us his righteousness. The death we deserve to die, he took. He became sin for us, that we might become his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. That's not bread thinking. That's Paul thinking. That's scripture. He became our righteousness Excuse me. We became his righteousness. He took our death. He became our sin. And as a result, now we can stand before God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what he's done. 
And he's also given us some tools. It's not just standing in his righteousness only by understanding a little bit about what he did on the cross. There are some tools that allow us to know what does it mean to be kept every day? How do we know that we are in him? Protected from the judgments that we should incur and the, 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 the deceitfulness of the world, the deception, the wickedness, the wrong tendencies of the world that would come and invade our lives to either lure us in the wrong direction or to pounce on us as a result of just being in the tide of the flow of the world. How do we know we are kept? Jesus here talks about the importance of what he did on the planet with the disciples. It gives us a clue. And there are two things that keep us in this world. One is his name. Two is the, is the word. His name, he says here, and the word. Now, there are other things that we can combine into the recipe of what it means to maintain our salvation. We can't, we can't keep it ourselves. We manifest it. When I say we can't keep our salvation, we can't make ourselves more saved than he's already made us. But we are to hold on to it regularly. And as a result, there are other things that come into play. There's obedience. There are a lot of things. But these two things are really important when Jesus speaks about what it means to be kept. He says, number one, I have kept them in the name you've given me. I've kept them in your name. Boy, the name of, the name of God is really important. He thought it was so important that he made it the third out of ten commands. He said, do not take my name. He wants us to take it, but do not take it in vain. Hold on to it. Keep it, but do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we have interpreted most of that commandment as do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And there's nothing wrong with that because you shouldn't do that either. But here, literally, God was saying, don't take it in vain. It would be as if someone got married, a woman got married to a man, took his name, and then decided she didn't want to keep her vows. And she decided that there were other people she wanted to be with. What would she have done but take his name in vain? We are the people of God. We need to be secured by his name to him. And if we're going to take his name, we need to live like it. Don't take it in vain. Don't take it simply because you want to go to heaven. Take it because you love them. Secure your vows and live them. Lord, my life is yours. This is what it sounds like to repent. Lord, my life is yours. I am no longer going to live the way I want to. I turn from my wicked ways and I choose to follow you all the days of my life. Forgive me for my sin. My life is yours. I am privileged now to call you my Lord. That's what it means to repent. If you do it this way, way I'm about to say, it's okay, but it's not complete. Lord, I'm sorry. Not enough. A little bit of sorrow could mean just because you, 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 you feel bad because you got caught. You don't like the consequences of your misdeeds, and so now that remorse is beginning to bubble up, and you realize you've been going wrong, and you want, you want to be absolved from your guilt. That's not repentance. You need to surrender your entire life. That's what it means to not take his name in vain. To live right as much as possible every day of your life. To love him with all of your heart. 
to not be one way in church and somebody else on Monday. Don't take his name in vain. I don't think any man would be real happy if his woman after, did that sound wrong? I'm going to use it anyway. If his woman, because, because he is her man. I, there, there's, there's no hierarchy there. There are lines of who's responsible, but there's no hierarchy. In marriage, folks are equal. If that woman took his name and then went some, someplace else on a, on a Tuesday and decided to use another, her maiden name or her last name because she didn't want to identify with him. Is it okay? Are you okay with identifying with Jesus on Tuesday? Are you embarrassed to be a Christian? I beg you, don't take his name in vain. The name of the Lord is so special. It is so worthy of honor. God didn't even share his name. We've got about 2,500 years. Is that me? Am I doing that? I'm sorry. Okay, not me? Just tell me not me. Thank you. We've got about 2,500 years of recorded history before we get to Moses. 2,500 years of genealogical recorded history before we get to Moses. And God has told nobody his name. Now, we do have his name mentioned in that period of time of recorded history. But that's only because Moses knew it and he was the one who wrote the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But we have no record that God ever revealed his name to anybody. Not to Adam, not to Noah, not to Abraham, not to Isaac. Excuse me, Isaac, yes. Not to those guys, none of them. What we have is Moses coming to the point at which God says, I want my people delivered. And would you please go to Egypt and take them out? And one of the first questions Moses asks is, who shall I say is sending me? Now, I think he's got a couple of motives in this. One, he doesn't want to go. <clears throat> and he's, he's trying to get out of it. So, so he, he realizes that the Lord may not want to reveal his name because he's never done that. But secondly, if he does go, he's got to have some credibility with the people to whom he's going to minister, namely the elders of Israel. He's got to have something just a little bit more than what they know in order for them to follow him because they don't like him anyway. He was a guy that they didn't trust when he was in Egypt because he was on the other side. And he did everything, at least consented tacitly, to everything that was being done wrong to the Israelites. So he had a rep that went before him. Why were they going to listen to him? Who shall I say is sending me? And God says, Tell them I am that I am. Now, I don't know that I have as much character as Moses. In fact, I know I don't. And so I might have asked some more questions about that. That doesn't sound like Jim. It sounds like a verb to me. I'm just, how, what does I am that I am means? What does that mean? Moses didn't ask. Because there must have been some authority behind whatever God said that, that was one of those, 
don't ask me again. <laughs> you know, mamas and daddies, you can say those kind of things in a certain way to your children. They say, oh, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. But that is an interesting way to describe yourself, is it not? But how do you describe yourself in a way that is way beyond the boundaries that somehow people put you in when they call your name? When mom and dad named you Brett, Everett, Fuller. There is is a box that Brett fits in. People define him as. They understand what he is and what he is not as a result of my name in part. Turn this, okay. They understand what I am and what I am not as a result of my name in part. Um, and, 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 and that allows people to at least separate me from somebody else. But how does God separate himself from all of humanity and all of creation? There's no way you can put him in a box. He's different than everything else. And so he says, the best way I can help you understand who I am is to let you know that I am different than everybody and everything else and that I always have been, I always am, and I always will be. I am the constant of the universe. Nothing else can define me. I define everything else. And so for me to give give myself a name like you've got one, pigeonholes me. And you think I'm like you. I'm not. I'm completely other and different. I am the everlasting from everlasting. And hear me. He, he is the only eternal in the universe. Now, we get eternal life, but we are immortal at best. Because eternity means you don't have a beginning, nor do you have an end. Immortality means you have an end, but you have a beginning. All of us had a beginning. All of creation had a beginning. Everything that we know to be true that's tangible, touchable, tasteable, understandable to us had a beginning. We were not supposed to have an end. Adam blew that. Eve blew that so that all of us have inherited their end. They couldn't produce anything other than what they were, and they gave us all that they had. And one of those things, unfortunately, we we inherited death. So we have an end, but we weren't supposed to have an end. Therefore, Jesus came to give us what kind of life? Eternal life. It doesn't mean that we won't have a beginning because we did. If you have a beginning, you cannot ever not have a beginning. But it does mean that he gave us what he had, which was life, and he only had eternal life. Therefore, we now can live forever. But God's different than us in that he had no beginning. And at some point, your children will come to you and say, Mommy, who made God? (laughs) Nobody, baby. Because all they see is something that has been made. But if you try to explain, well, God was made by, then whoever made God is God. And, and the God you know that was made is not God because God can be made. It's one of the things that's distinguishing him from all of creation is that he was never made. I know that is to you, but it's supposed to be. If God can fit in your theological brain completely, he's too small. He is so much bigger than you. Moses, I am that I am. We call that Yahweh. And Moses, retroactively, 
begins to describe him as that is in the book of Genesis all the way through. But it took 2,500 years for God to entrust people with his name. Now, when I, when, when, I, when, I, when I think about his name, I think about people he didn't entrust it to, like Jacob. So Jacob was trying to, he was going to meet his brother the next day. And this is the brother that, from whom he stole the birthright and the blessing. The birthright was the order in which children were born. Jacob was second, Esau was first. Esau would get a double portion of the inheritance as a result of being firstborn. And Jacob swindled him out of that blessing. You talk about dysfunction. Some of y'all got some problems in your family, but none had more than Jacob, Esau, Isaac, and, and Rebekah. You talk about a mess. Esau comes in from hunting. Three days, got nothing. He hasn't eaten anything in three days. Jacob's got stew because he's a keeper of the flocks. Esau was a hunter. Esau says, give me some of that stew. Jacob says this. You give me your birthright, I'll give you some. What kind of brother says that to his brother? What kind of brother says that to you? What is wrong with you, Jacob? Let your brother eat a bowl of stew. What is, gosh, that is terrible. What's worse is that Esau despised his birthright so much, he said, okay. He could have gone to mama. <laughs> he could have gone down the street to mama and mama would have fed him. That's how little he thought of his birthright. And then Jacob stole, stole his blessing by pretending he was Esau in front of his daddy Isaac, their daddy Isaac. And Isaac had poor eyesight. And so the only thing he had was touch. And his mother contrived a plan that made their father believe that Jacob was now Esau. And therefore, Isaac, his dad, gave, gave Jacob Esau's blessing. Oh, Esau was hot. So hot was Esau that Esau had happy thoughts when he thought about killing his brother. Those were his happy thoughts. Thus, Jacob had to leave. Been gone 20 years. Now God says, I want you to come back to the promised land that you are to inherit. He's about to cross over into Esau's territory before he can get to his own. And he is scared to death. He's out He's praying all night long, and this, this being comes to wrestle him. He thinks it's either Esau or one of Esau's henchmen, and he is fighting for his life. It's dark. There are no street lamps. He can't see. He just knows he is fighting somebody, and it's almost daybreak now. He has fought all night, and he realizes this thing isn't human. This is an angel of almighty God. Maybe the angel of God. And he says, tell me your name. You know, what, you know what the Lord says? He says, why do you want to know? No good answer comes from Jacob. God says, never mind. See, some people take the name of God and use it for their own gain. Everything about Jacob Probably would have done that. And so God said, nope, not going to tell you. Not going to tell you. God is picky about who he gives his name to. Who he reveals himself to. It is important. It is priceless. It is valuable. Lord, Jesus says, I have kept them, Father, in your name. I've given it to them. This name allows us to understand the value of being in the family. 
it, it helps us understand what it means to be together, what it means to be protected. Here he says they've been protected by this name. I haven't lost one. It's the only place, arguably, that you can find in the New Testament where Jesus is commending his labor to the Father about what he's done. And that is what he has been able to keep in terms of disciples. He says, I haven't lost one, save the son of perdition who is supposed to be gone. Not one. I have returned them all to you as promised. How? By keeping them in this name. It wasn't the force of will of Christ. It was the name of Jesus that kept them together. And I'm telling you, there's something that separates us in the body of Christ from the rest of the world. And that this name allows us to be distinguished from the rest of the world. It keeps us all together, too. There's a commonality about what it means to struggle through in the name of Jesus and come to the other side. There's a way we look at one another in the eye and understand if we walked with one another in the name together, I know what you've been through. I can trust you. This name holds us. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is like a strong tower. The righteous run unto it and find safety. It's not just that I run unto letters on a page. I run to my brothers. I run to the church. I run to the name that is, that, 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 that the people that are representing the name. Everything that the name has in drawing us together and producing unity allows us to feel safe on the planet. We are kept in this name. The name of Jesus Christ. The name of the family of Almighty God. It's a special thing. Adopted kids understand something about being put in a family differently than those who were born. They understand that their name was given to them. It wasn't inherited. As a result, they have blessings and privileges and protections that they wouldn't have otherwise. Even though they go through difficulty trying to figure out what their original name might have been. Identifying with their birth and birth mother and birth father. They understand the protections that came with the name that they were given. And they hold on to it and love it. There is something very special about being adopted in the family. This name that we have been given needs to be prized, held, appreciated, and run unto in times of difficulty. Secondly, the word of Almighty God. He says, I've given them your word, and your word has kept them. This word allows us to be people who can be, be shaped and shielded from the, from the wiles and wickedness and, and temptations of this world. This word is so important that God wants us to meditate on it in a way that is unceasing. Joshua, if you want your way to be successful, Joshua 1, 8 and 9. If you want your way to be successful, if you want prosperity to be yours, Get in this word and meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. You need to read your Bible every day. Every day of your life you need to read your Bible. You do not need to make this your one time where you are getting the word throughout your week. This ought to be icing on the cake. You ought to be making a cake all week long with your word. Your word keeps you away from stuff and keeps you in stuff. It reminds you of who you are on a regular basis. It reminds you of what you should do and what you should not do. It prompts you so that you know best course of action. 
gives you wisdom about how to make decisions. If you're in your word regularly, you don't always need to make a call to the pastor and say, where's that Bible verse? Help me with what God might say here. Nothing wrong with getting wisdom when you need it. But the longer you go in God, the more you ought to be able to rely on the Holy Spirit and the reservoir of wealth on the inside of you called the Bible. Deposits made on a regular basis down in your soul. I've been kept for 41 years because I get in this Bible every day of my life. I didn't come out of my mama's womb with a Bible speaking in tongues. I was born again in 20. And from that time, I, I developed a love for his word. I listened to my son, who's the pastor of the church over in Chantilly. He's 26. And I listened to him preach. And I'm just so proud. So proud. And I'm also just so mad. <laughs> so mad. Because it ain't right. It is right as right can be and it's not right. He's 26. When I was 26, <laughs> people didn't want to hear me in crowds. They were staying away in crowds because I could not communicate well. My pastor said this because I couldn't figure out how to get a lot of people to come to my meetings over at Howard University where I was a campus minister. He said... Um, you know, it's probably better to try to reap the harvest rather than burn it. <laughs> Quote. Quote. Yeah. I wasn't very good. I wasn't. I didn't have a whole lot of upbringing in Scripture. Lord's Prayer was about it. Mama taught me that to pray before I went to sleep. That's about it. She drugged me to church. I didn't listen just like she did. It was a place I needed to be on a Sunday morning. But I didn't do anything right. When I got right with God at 20, I said, oh, what have I been doing with my life? And back then, we had card catalogs, little boxes. They were about three by five, into which could be inserted three by five cards, index cards. And you would write scriptures on them. And you'd have everything alphabetized so that you knew where to find the scriptures on topic. So scriptures on lust were in there for me. Scriptures on selfishness were in there for me. I wasn't trying to figure out how to find the promises of God. I was trying to figure out how to stay away from sin. And so all of my passages <laughs> were, were alphabetized in this card catalog. And I'd open it up and I'd memorize it every day. I never stopped. I kept staying in this Bible. And today, I'm in my Bible every day of my life. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a Christian. And I don't want to be kept by my profession. I want to be kept by the word. Jesus said, I've, I've given him your word. And it's kept him. It's kept him. There's something about this word that holds you together holds us together. We understand what it means to be unified as a church as a result of the word of Almighty God. It says in Ephesians, be diligent to preserve, verse 3 in chapter 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. 
There's a passage that talks about how important it is to resist division, either corporately or individually in your life. Exercising diligence. It is hard work to stay with people. But if you don't know the emphasis that the Bible has to say about what it means to stay, you'll leave at the first sight of offense. You'll find someplace else to go. And may I say, when you run to that next place, the same thing will happen. Because the issue is not the people you left. The issue is you. And God is trying to help you understand how to apply the principles that are necessary for your progress, even in the midst of difficulty. If you can only survive when, when times are wonderful, shame on you. The, 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 the passage in Matthew chapter 7, you're not building well. Matthew 7 says this. It was a man who, who decided, two, two guys decided to hear the word. One built his house on sand because he didn't do what God said. The other decided, I'm going to do what I hear, and I'm going to decide to build on rock. The storm came, and we are not impervious to the storm. Everybody has to go through the storm. How do you build? And it's really hard to build in a storm. you got to build in times of peace. How do you build? You build by putting this word down on the inside of you, architecturally. Putting things together when it doesn't seem like you're going to need it. And I'll close with this. <clears throat> there were some, I have a patio I built in my backyard so we can do some grilling. This is about 15 years ago. 20. <laughs> and there was a retaining wall on, that they were building and they had various stones that they were putting together and they were going to make it flat on top and I sat there for 45 minutes watching these guys put these stones together because I said I'm going to get a sermon out of this and, and the stones did not seem to fit together at all it's not like they were bricks all the same shape they were all amorphous and I said how do they know which stone is going to work for that spot and then how are they going to get it flat on top? So I watched them. And they, they, they built, they put, they, they, and then they started putting stones on top, uh, slate on top, on top and, and, and they were done. Now, at, when they were finished, they knocked on the door and they said, Mr. Fuller, please come out and look. And they were all smiling because it was beautiful. It had, a, it had a curve to it. It was flat this way. It was flat this way. It was flat on the other side, flat on the ends. I said, that's really great. They were smiling. Do you like it? Yeah. I didn't see one of them smile or get happy when a stone was put upon another as they were building it, though. It was just work. But the finished product made them really proud. Getting in this Bible every day is boring. It can be boring, especially when you're reading First Chronicles or Numbers. He begets so-and-so, who begets so-and-so, who begets so-and-so, who begets so-and-so, and he died, and he died, and he begets so-and-so, and after that, he died. And you're thinking to yourself, is this really important? Do I need this for my life? Can I not just cut to the chase? You need to read your Bible every day. Regardless of whether stuff jumps on, out, out of the page into your life, regardless of whether you feel this, wow, that was amazing. Why? Because it is the building process that is most important, not the, whether it feels spectacular. And every day you do not get in this word is one day you're not putting stone upon another, which delays the process of the construction of whatever you're trying to build. I beg you, get in this Bible every day because it will keep you. It'll keep you from sin and keep you on point in going forward in your destiny.
Can you say amen? amen? Two things Jesus said. I've kept them by your name, and I've kept them by the word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your grace upon this people that you would help all of us to remain in your principles of being kept. We trust that you will help us to be the kinds of folks who can honor you with a life lived well in the end. I pray that we would revere your name, love your name, honor your name. We would never live in a way that brings shame to your name. And Lord, that you would help us to value the word you've given us. In the name of Jesus. Is there anybody this morning who has yet to give their heart to Christ? Maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be, and you want to make a fresh one today. If you fit in either of those categories, raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Anybody at all want to get right with God today? Raise your hand high. I see that hand. Bless you. Once it's up, you can put it down. You online, you might find yourself in the same position. Today's a great day to come home, to come home. You who raised your hand and you who are in line that want to get right with God, pray with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I have lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege of calling Jesus the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we want to help you. If you are online, you can go to the, the bottom of the chat box, check a box there that says, I lifted my hand, and somebody will get in contact with you. All we want to do is help you become the best Christian you can possibly be. If you're here and you made that decision, come down front. There's some people who want to give you some tools that can aid you in the process, uh, process of your walk and to assist you through prayer. Bless your church. Love you much. Thank you.